This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for Reveal comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash reveal. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. For almost as long as there's been an America, there's been a census. Every 10 years since 1790, the federal government has set out to count everyone who lives here. From ocean to ocean, border to border, population takes miles and months. Census day is coming up, April 1st. This is when we're all supposed to answer questions about where we live and with whom, our age, race, and sex. This statistical snapshot will be used for things like distributing federal funds to states and local communities. As the nation has gotten bigger and more complex, so has the census. The first census took 18 months to count less than 4 million people. Using today's electronic tools, we'll count over 200 million in a fraction of that time. Every 10 years, the Census Bureau rolls out campaigns to convince people to take part. In 80 million mailboxes across the USA, the census is coming to help us plan the way. In 1980, they used sports stars. I'm Elvin Hayes of the Washington Bullets. I'm Lou Brock of the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm Sugar Ray Leonard. Even Mickey Mouse helped get the word out. Can we count on you? You can count on me. It's always been a challenge to carry out the census, and this one is shaping up to be especially difficult. When a census goes out, you should find out whether or not, and you have the right to ask whether or not somebody is a citizen of the United States. The Trump administration's attempt to add a citizenship question last year caused panic in immigrant communities and a firestorm on Capitol Hill. It's going to intimidate and discourage. And it has to be seen in a context, the context of an anti-immigrant policy coming out of this White House. Critics accuse the administration of using the citizenship question to scare immigrants, even those living in the U.S. legally, away from the census. The administration said it was trying to provide data to enforce the Voting Rights Act. But the Supreme Court said that justification was contrived and blocked the question from appearing on the census. President Trump has vowed to gather citizenship information using existing data from states and federal agencies. Are you a citizen of the United States of America? Oh, gee, I'm sorry. I just can't answer that question. And that's after spending billions and billions of dollars. Even though the question has been removed, the citizenship controversy still hangs over the census. And that's only one of the issues facing this year's count. So where does that leave the 2020 census? Can it meet its goal of counting everyone? And who's behind efforts to limit who gets counted? That's what we're looking at on today's show. Hey, sweetie, what did you learn in school today? I learned that the 2020 census counts everyone in the U.S. Where there are more people, there are more needs for things like schools and hospitals. Just like the little girl says in this PSA, census numbers are used in a ton of ways. It's estimated that more than a trillion dollars gets divvied up to states each year based on the numbers. They're also used to figure out how many seats each state gets in the House of Representatives. Montana and Florida, for example, might gain a seat in Congress this time around. California and Illinois could lose one. So the work done in the census translates into political power, who gets it and who doesn't. And when the count isn't accurate, 
there are consequences. It could mean that schools, hospitals, or businesses are built in the wrong place or shut down unnecessarily. If young children aren't counted, that could mean there aren't enough slots in programs like Head Start. The census matters, and this time around, it's in big trouble. The debate around the citizenship question has gotten a lot of attention, but there were problems long before that entered the picture. For one thing, the basic goal of just counting everyone is getting more difficult. It is a massive operation that is incredibly complex. That's Sunshine Hillegas, a political science professor at Duke University who studied the census for years. The proportion of the population that speaks a different language, that is highly mobile, that is younger, these are all things that make the population more difficult to count. And because counting everyone is harder to do, it's also more expensive. The cost has been ballooning for decades. For 2020, Congress told the Bureau to reel things in. At the beginning of the decade, for the first time really ever, the Census Bureau was instructed to prioritize cost savings over quality. A tall order, count a growing population with less money. There was recognition that that would be a difficult task, but that there were some opportunities for innovation. Innovation. The Census Bureau sets its hopes on new technology as a way to get a more accurate count. Obviously, the big one is the fact that this will be primarily conducted online. This is a first. Next month, the census will start sending out invitations in the mail, telling people how to use the online form. The Bureau says this will save money, paper, and be more user-friendly. But some of the Bureau's own experts are worried they're not doing enough to get out the message about how it will work. We are not using the multiple contact strategies of email. We could. We have a contact list. We're not doing it. That's Nancy Bates, a Census Bureau scientist giving a presentation to other survey experts in 2019. In her talk, she listed off some things the Bureau could be doing to prod people to respond, but isn't. We could use texts, right? But we're not doing that either. And we're also not reaching out to people by phone. They can call in, but we're not calling them. Maybe I'm worrying too much, but those are kind of some of the things that do keep me up a little bit at night. She's not the only one who's worried. Last year, the Government Accountability Office found the 2020 census is one of the most severely at-risk projects in the federal government. We wanted to ask the Census Bureau about these concerns, but were not given an interview. In a written statement, a representative said the Bureau is committed to ensuring a complete count and that this round will be the most high-tech yet. Even if the system runs without a hiccup, some people still might decide they don't want to fill out the census form. When people don't complete the census forms, the Bureau sends workers out to knock on doors and get those households counted. This work is time-consuming and expensive. And here again, the Bureau had big plans for technology. In 2012, it held a contest, asking people to come up with a statistical model to help them find people who were most likely to ignore their census forms. 244 people took part in the contest, including Bill Bain. I currently work as a data scientist in the healthcare business. Data contests are Bill's idea of a good time. Remember when Netflix wanted to come up with a better algorithm to recommend your next weekend binge? They held a competition, too. The prize was a million dollars. Bill didn't win the Netflix competition, but he came close. After that, you know, you sort of have that letdown, right? Like, what am I going to do now? So when he heard about the Census Bureau's return rate challenge, he was in. What they were looking for was a way to better predict where return rates, and that is how many people do not send back their census results, right, where return rates would be low. And that way, you know, it would theoretically enable them to target their resources better because they every 10 years they have to hire an army of people, right? Because the whole job of the census basically is it's easy when people uh, report and send in their, their paperwork, no big deal. But it's finding people communities, places where people really don't respond. So the, the game here is to help them target those communities. Right. So so you could just do, well, in the 2000 census, these are the places that didn't respond well, right? You could do that. But that's not really going to tell you the story because things change over a 10-year period. So it's like predictive modeling. It is predictive modeling. With a predictive model, the Census Bureau can be more strategic about where to send workers who knock on doors when people don't respond. 
Bill won the competition and took home the $14,000 prize. But these days, he doesn't think his model will do the job. Look, these people are going to be afraid, and people who are afraid aren't going to respond. President Trump unveiling a new push to track down undocumented immigrants as ICE agents gear up for a series of raids this this weekend. Ten cities were previously listed as being targeted for the ICE raids. Multiple raids have already happened across Contra Costa and Santa Clara counties. Bill says the administration's stance towards immigrants is like a witch hunt that will scare people away from the census because of concerns that the government will use the information to come after them. He says 2020 is very different from 2000 or 2010, the years his model was based on. If people who get this form and aren't maybe inclined to fill it out anyway now think that uh, filling it out is going to do them some harm or there's going to be some danger in it, then absolutely they don't want to fill it out. That throws your model all out of whack. So what would be your advice to the census now? I would have to tell them that these modern techniques like machine learning um, will probably not be as helpful as they would like in this case. I would have to say, gear up for hiring a bigger army than you've had to hire before. If someone asked him today to create a predictive model, Bill says he wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole because his results would be terrible. Fear is a set of data he can't quantify. One of the places where that fear of the census runs deep is in California's Central Valley, where local advocates are doing everything they can to save the census. We know that we're trusted messengers, and so we need to make sure that our staff can be ready and able to help. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Let's escape for a moment into a Spanish-language radio drama. Buenas tardes, doña Rosario. Busca mi mamá? No, mijo. Vengo a ver a tu papá. A woman knocks on a door looking for a young man's father. But she's not there to inquire about a long-lost twin or any sort of love triangle. ¿Tú sabes qué es el censo? Sí. She's there to let him know about the census. These radio novelas are playing on stations across California. They're just one of the creative ways groups are trying to address the fears about the census in Latino communities. Yo cuento. Tú cuentas. Nosotros contamos. California is investing big in getting the word out about the census, especially in communities like the one reveals Matt Smith has been looking at. Okay, here we are. I'm driving through Fresno in California's Central Valley. It's a really hard-to-count area. The Census Bureau estimates one in three households will not respond to the census form. And that has Fresno leaders worried about getting an accurate count. Very flat, wide boulevards, tree-lined streets. Here, it's all strip malls, tract houses. More than half the people here are Hispanic, 12% non-citizens. Businesses have names like Mariscos Costa Azul and Serrano's Furniture Galleries. In the quarter mile, turn left. It's also one of America's poorest cities. Around a third of the people are in poverty. Many residents here have been paying close attention to the anti-immigrant rhetoric coming from President Trump. Mi nombre es Lilia Becerril. Tengo 30 años viviendo en el estado de California. I meet up with Lilia Becerril. She's lived in California 30 years and is really connected to her community. The people she knows say they're afraid of the census and even the citizenship question. They just don't trust reports that it's out. I ask her if it's rational for people to be afraid. Es un temor este, 
She says it is. There's the tone set by President Trump, like we heard earlier with the news clips about ICE raids. And, she says, people fear their census information may be used by immigration. That would be against the law. But there's a lot of mistrust. I ask Lilia if it's hard to convince some people that there won't be a citizenship question. Lilia is saying exactly there is still a problem convincing people there will be no citizenship question. People have to have faith their information will be safe. Lilia says the damage is done, and a lot of immigrants don't trust the census. I heard this over and over around California. In Fresno, city leaders know about how afraid people are. So they started to get the word out months in advance. Buenos días. O tardes. Ya son tardes, ¿verdad? Back in September, they went all out for a Know Your Census Rights party with free hamburgers and a baile folklorico troupe. Luis Chavez, a Fresno councilman and educator, was one of the speakers. And I can't stress how important the census is going to be. We only get one shot at this every 10 years. But the event was a bust. Few people showed up. In Fresno, the word census has become a bit of a do not enter sign. I know for a fact that a lot of community members wanted to come today, but they are scared. Uh, And they told me that, that they wanted to see how the first one went. And I completely understand. One former student told him she would come to any of his events, but not one about the census. She thought her mom might be deported. This attitude has to change if the census is going to succeed. We need to, as a community, make sure we're getting the message out about how important it is. Elizabeth Jonathan Rosas is married to Luis. She's a Fresno economic development official, a school board member, and she's on Fresno's census committee. She says the census message is a hard sell because it's so different from something community activists have been saying for years. You don't have to open the door. If someone knocks at your door, you don't have to answer the door. You know, you have rights. The police need a search warrant or ICE needs certain steps. And so now we're saying, but wait, if it's a census worker, it's okay to open the door. Um, The community sees it as mixed messaging. That's also why they're talking to residents about filling out the census form by April 1st so they can avoid that door knock altogether. And even though Elizabeth is responsible for census outreach in Fresno, she fears the count will fail here. I would say you can characterize it as a fight against the federal government in that they're not providing the adequate support and the adequate resources that we know are needed. Is that a, like a real visceral personal feeling of anger? It's, it's definitely something that gets me angry because when we are in such poverty, when we have such high rates of people not having insurance, not having access to, to basic health care, and we know that, that we're not getting what we need from the federal government to provide for an accurate count so that we could get the funding that we need, it, it's just very, very infuriating to know that it's likely going to be an undercount again. An undercount wouldn't just hurt Elizabeth's community, it would affect everybody. In 2016, California got $115 billion in federal money tied to the number of people counted in the census. An undercount could hurt things like the Children's Health Insurance Program, which provides inexpensive coverage to families. There would also be political effects. One study said if 15% of non-citizens in California don't participate, it could lose a seat in Congress. The high stakes prompted the state to spend big on the census. I'll do the math for you. $187 million is being invested to make sure we get a complete count. This is Governor Gavin Newsom in June. And we are going to make sure that we run an unprecedented campaign to touch every corner of this state. The state set up what's called a complete count committee to essentially run a massive PR campaign urging people to complete their census forms. They held a big meeting in Fresno in December. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to beautiful Fresno, California. My name is Alex Padilla. I have the Alex Padilla is California's Secretary of State, and he chairs the census program. 
is every time we meet, we remind ourselves that it is California's level of participation in the census that will determine our fair share of federal funding for the next 10 years. Funding for transportation, for infrastructure, for safety, for housing. For California is doing a lot to rescue the census. Other states, a lot less. 26 have put up extra money, with California spending by far the most. The other 24 states aren't spending a thing, and Padilla, he thinks that's nuts. So we know we cannot just rely on the U.S. Census Bureau uh, to effectively get the word out throughout the state of California. And any other state that has not uh, uh, tried to create some sort of complete count committee, uh, I think that it's malpractice on their part for their state. Sunshine Hillivis, the census expert we heard from earlier in the show, says the need for states to prop up the census is very real. Because some of the things that had been done at the the federal level before are no longer being done. One of the big design changes is they reduced the number of regional census offices. And so there's just fewer feet on the ground in, in terms of census activity. And she says the Bureau is not doing enough about the fact there's a lot of fear left over, even though the citizenship question is gone. The research on communication campaigns suggests that the best way to kind of counter fears would be to directly address the basis of those fears. They could run commercials saying there will be no citizenship question and that immigrants need not worry. Unfortunately, my understanding is is that the Census Bureau um, is not going to directly address that fear. So the federal government won't go head on at a problem the federal government caused. Immigrants now have a bigger-than-ever fear of the census. Uh, My name is Roberta Barton. I am a partnership specialist with the U.S. Census. The Census Bureau is relying on local partners to tackle the fears. In December, Fresno leaders held a workshop. They called it Census 101. We look to you as our partners, again, as our trusted community voices, to help us accomplish these goals. So we're happy to see you here today. In the audience are two dozen leaders from community organizations. Now I'm going to have you guys be part of the presentation. Roberta asked the group to do a role-playing exercise so they can address frequently asked questions. In one scenario, she plays a worried Fresno resident. I was going to fill out my census questionnaire, and then I got kind of worried about, is it protected? I mean... Are the police going to see it? Uh, I'm Absolutely not. They are not going to see it. It's confidential, and it's used so we can count everyone in the community, but it's not going to be shared with anyone. Good on. Good job. Thank you. That's true. The government does not release personal information it collects in the census, but there are still concerns about confidentiality. Recently, the Bureau did a test and scientists were able to identify some people's names by working backward from data that had been publicly released. The Bureau says it's bringing in a more secure system. But fixing this problem is a moving target. Officials also said that even without the citizenship question, the Bureau can use other information to figure out the citizenship status of almost all the people who answer the census. But in the midst of these security concerns and general mistrust, an accurate count is still vital to communities like Fresno. That's why city leader Elizabeth Jonathan Rosas organized this training. We know that we're trusted messengers, and so we need to make sure that our um, service people, the people that are interacting with the public, our, our staff, can be ready and able to help. Today, it's role-playing. In other places, people are painting census murals or putting on census plays and census house parties. Elizabeth says they're doing anything they can. There's a lot that the federal government could have done in its planning processes to ensure that this goes in a better fashion, but that's just not the way it is. And so we can either lament that fact continuously or we can take it upon ourselves to do something about it. And we've done the latter. That story from Reveals Matt Smith. He's also been looking into how Texas is dealing with the census. For years, its population has been growing faster than any other state. And like in California, there was an effort to create a statewide complete count committee. So I filed this last legislative session, House Bill 255. 
That's Cesar Blanco from El Paso, a Democrat in the Texas House of Representatives. And this bill would allow for the state to participate in complete count committees and census outreach to educate individuals throughout the state on the importance of being counted. But the bill didn't go anywhere. It didn't even get a hearing in the Republican-controlled legislature. Anything that has to do with a census, because it's been so politicized at the national level, I believe that Republicans didn't want to have that type of debate on the House floor. And we are heading into a census without any state resources uh, or infrastructure to help our state receive an accurate count. I'm going to bring Matt Smith back in. So, Matt, it sounds like the state isn't doing much to support the census. But how is that climate of fear that we heard about in California affecting people in Texas? Well, Texas leaders haven't merely taken anti-immigration cues from Donald Trump. They've been writing a playbook like this for years with rhetoric and legislation branding immigrants as the sort of bad people you don't want in Texas. The governor, he sent out a fundraising letter warning of an invasion of Hispanic immigrants. It said, if we're going to defend Texas, we need to take matters into our own hands. The next day, a 21-year-old posted an Internet manifesto saying Hispanics pose a threat to American racial identity. Fifteen minutes later, he shot and killed more than 20 people in El Paso. We should mention that after the shooting, Texas Governor Greg Abbott did admit that the language he used was not appropriate and that mistakes were made in that fundraising campaign. It's true, but it uh, added to a climate, I'll say that. Uh, It came just on the heels of all the rhetoric surrounding the citizenship question. Republicans in Texas were lockstep on that. One of those voices was Ted Cruz, the senator. First of all, do you want to see this question on the census? Absolutely. I mean, this is just common sense. The Constitution... And this issue, it it has its roots in Texas, right? Well, yeah, you might have heard of a man named Thomas Hoffler, a Republican strategist. In 2015, he wrote a report on how to keep Texas red. How do you do it? You redraw legislative districts with only citizens counted. How do you do that? He wrote in his report, you have to include a citizenship question in the 2020 census. So, you know, this hard rhetoric you heard around the citizenship question, Texas is the heartland of that stuff. 2015 also, there was a big lawsuit all the way to the Supreme Court uh, that said not just Texas, but every state in the union should have to draw its legislative district with only citizens. Well, I, I talked to the plaintiff in that case, Sue Evanwell. She's a county Republican Party official up in northeast Texas. And she says, why should I have less representation than somebody in Austin whose voting district counts a whole bunch of non-citizens? What are the Republican Party leaders saying about the citizenship question now? Did, did you talk to anyone? I talked to James Dickey, the GOP party chair for Texas. Um, He noted that this issue is baked into the platform of the Texas Republican Party. So plank number 59 says we support an actual count of United States citizens only and oppose Census Bureau estimates and the collection of all other data. Um, That is uh, the party's official position on that. Who do you think should be counted in the census? Well, according to our platform, the platform says we support an actual count of United States citizens only and oppose estimates and collection of all other data. But the census is supposed to count every resident in the United States. That's something we hear directly from the Census Bureau. So why would Texas Republicans not want to have information about non-citizens? Well, talking to Texas politicians... Uh, professors, political consultants, a lot of people think Texas is on the cusp of turning, at least the Texas House of Representatives from red to blue. Now, that's a real problem for the Republican Party. Studies show a complete census would give Texas three new congressional seats. Much of the growth is people of color and people in cities, and they're voting Democrat. I asked James Dickey if this was all just politics. I do not think that it is a given that uh, non-citizens are fans of the Democrat Party. Uh, Well, maybe you can expand upon that because that clearly is, you know, a a critique of your political opponents, that this is all political and that— No, actually, that's just a reflection. The fact that that is their only argument just shows how weak their position is. 
Um, when, when you have no facts on your side, you blame the motives of your opponent. That's what they have done. So do you favor an incomplete count? Of course not. He says he doesn't favor an incomplete count, but critics and academic analysts say there will be an incomplete count. So what will be the consequences of that? Well, there's federal money. A good portion of that is doled out according to state population counted by the census. Uh, And then there's just straight-up clout. Uh, If you have fewer seats in Congress, you have less influence and you get less out of Washington. I'm surprised that Texas GOP is willing to risk losing money and power. Why aren't they concerned about that? Well, James Dickey says it's a matter of good policy. The census is a federal responsibility. And so it's not the state's job. But Cesar Blanco, on the other hand, a Democrat who sponsored a complete count bill, says that's irresponsible and short-sighted. It's shocking to me that in the federal pie that states fight for, and $59 billion of that, which uh, has been going to Texas, that lawmakers in the state of Texas uh, wouldn't do everything in their power to position ourselves to get a bigger piece of that pie. We've been focused on the politics, but I'm wondering about other things that might be affected by an incomplete count. Well, yeah, you know the obvious things I told you about, billions of dollars to be lost, lost political clout. But miscounting your population, that means you're actually scrambling the wires of your state. Census data is everywhere. Whether a county is figuring out where to put a new school or they're trying to figure out what neighborhood to put a grocery store in, I talked to experts about this. One of them was the city demographer of Austin, uh, and he said he's certain there will be a historically bad undercount thanks to anti-immigrant rhetoric and the fear that it causes. Okay, so the stakes are really high for a lot of reasons. Are there census outreach efforts in Texas to make sure everyone gets counted? Oh, sure. Austin and other Texas cities and counties and private Philanthropist groups, they're spending money to help with the census, but it's nothing compared to the more than $180 million that the state of California is spending. Matt Smith, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure, Al, as always. In Texas, the challenge with the census is getting people counted. In parts of Wisconsin, the challenge is getting people counted in the right place. So we're undercounted in this community because they've been counted somewhere else. That story in a minute on Reveal. But first, I want to mention that this week's show is just the beginning of a larger project Reveal is launching about the 2020 census. We want to take a look at how the census will affect power and representation across the country. We're calling the project Seeing 2020. And the very first step is hearing from you. Send us your questions about how the census might affect your community by texting CENSUS to 474747. You can text STOP at any time and standard data rates apply. Again, that's CENSUS to 474747. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. As we've heard today, there's a big debate about who should get counted as a part of this year's census. But in communities all over the country, there's also a disagreement about where they should get counted. Okay, so we're sitting on the corner of 26 and Mafford, and it's um, the neighborhood that I live in. Right now, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's fairly quiet, except for the noise that's coming from the busy street. Cheryl McFarlane lives on the north side of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a neighborhood called the 53206 Fort Zip Code. She was born and raised there, and she's seen her neighborhood change a lot over the years. I sit on my front porch, and I just watch the neighborhood, because there's a lot of things, just like one of my neighbors across the street has a little girl. She's maybe two or three years old, and she's such a princess. And he carries her on on his shoulder across the street to the park. So those are the type of things I like to see. I see that almost every day, and at the same time, I may see a fight. You know, I may see some violence. That violence grew out of big changes that happened in Cheryl's neighborhood in the 70s and 80s. The city planned to build a freeway and demolish homes to make way for it. The freeway was never built, but those families moved away. 
Factories closed, good middle-class jobs dried up. The 53206 used to be diverse, but it became more segregated as African Americans were pushed into one part of the city, away from better schools. And as things started to fall apart, the crime rate went up. I really feel that if we solve poverty, we will solve a lot of things because people need to have hope. How can you be hopeful when your child is going to jail? So, like, when you just even look around, like, house to house, so how many that, of these places have been touched by somebody going to prison, do you think? That's reporter Natasha Haverty. And for the past couple years, she's been reporting on how the census connects with another fact about this community. The 53206 now has one of the highest rates of people going to prison in the country. I say every house on this side, how many houses is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. There's twelve houses on one side of the street over here. And I'm going to say all twelve houses have been affected by incarceration of a male or a female or a teenage child, male or female. Because that's how severe the problem is with incarceration. Cheryl's house, too. All three of her sons have spent time behind bars. Two of her brothers have been imprisoned for most of their lives. As Cheryl points to house after house on her block where someone has been sent away, she's beginning to uncover a story about who gets counted in America and who doesn't. Natasha Haverty picks up the story to investigate how locking up so many people is shifting the balance of power in some communities. A few years ago, Cheryl realized something about all those houses with a family member in prison. When the Census Bureau came around, it didn't count those family members in the 53206. It counted them as residents of whatever prison or jail they were in. So we're undercounted in this community because they've been counted somewhere else. That somewhere else tends to be about as different a place from Cheryl's community as you can imagine. Rural, white, 100 miles away. A place like New Lisbon, Wisconsin in Juneau County. Well, it's a small town, 1,500 people. Now it's 2,500 people because of the prison. But it's, it's just small town living and it's neat. Roy Granger got elected to the County Board of Supervisors here a decade ago in 2010. When he took his oath of office, he imagined he'd be representing the people he grew up with, people he sees at the hardware store or the holiday craft fair. But then two big things happened. First, a state prison opened just across the highway, which the community celebrated as a boon for the local economy. And after that, it was time for the census count and for the county to draw new district lines. The census counted the 1,000 inmates of the new prison as residents of Granger's hometown. And since each county district has to have the same amount of people, 1,200 give or take, Roy's district was completely redrawn, a sliver of the town of New Lisbon, plus everyone in the prison, even though none of those inmates can vote. So when it comes time for elections, and I got 1,000 residents that are locked up in that prison that can't vote, but they still count in my district. More than 80% of Roy's district is incarcerated, and that gives all the voting power to a handful of people, compared to people in nearby districts that don't have a prison. And this practice of counting prisoners as residents of their prison's district instead of the place they call home, this is called prison gerrymandering. Roy reads off the census figures for his district, and it sounds pretty diverse. I've got 92 Hispanics, 786 whites, 361 blacks. But all those people of color? Prison. Prison. This plays out all over the country. Prisons are built in overwhelmingly white, rural areas, and black people, usually from more urban areas, are sent to prison at disproportionately high rates. And Wisconsin? In the last census, Wisconsin had the highest rate of black male incarceration in the U.S., which means the highest rate of black men in the state being counted somewhere else. Well, do you ever hear from them? No. No. Because I can't vote. So there's no, no connection between them and county government. Because they're, they're locked up. They have no idea what's around them. So they have no clue. 
inmate call from Leonard Collins, an inmate at Oak Hill Correctional Institution. You may begin speaking now. Good morning. Hey, how's it going? Leonard Collins is Cheryl's brother. Leonard took notice of something when he arrived at prison years ago. On census day, he and the other inmates weren't handed a form to fill out. The prison filled it out for him. When I came to prison, there was unanswered questions that I just kept in the back of my mind. Then I started uh, gradually finding out about different things. So uh, I'm not ignorant of, of these facts. He says he was so shocked, he wrote a letter to his state congresswoman about it. He got a letter back from her to thank him. This is the way the census has always counted incarcerated people. If you're in prison or jail on census day, that's where you live. And until half a century ago, that didn't have much of an effect. But between the 70s and 90s, states enacted a wave of tough-on-crime policies. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. There was the war on drugs, but also mandatory minimums, which handed tons of discretion to prosecutors, and truth in sentencing, which essentially got rid of parole. And all that hit poor communities of color like the 53206 the hardest. You know, those people that was doing that, you know, they had a political and a financial interest in doing One it. One minute remaining. It, it limits our political power. Political power. Who gets it and who gets to determine it? These are the questions our democracy rides on. And prison gerrymandering is one way that locking up so many people, 2.3 million in the last count, has reshaped our democracy. Some people think this is all about federal dollars. It's not, because the overall state population usually stays the same. It's about how power is distributed within the state. It's using people who have no rights to give greater power to those people who are oppressing or incarcerating those people. Oscar Blayton is a civil rights attorney and former combat pilot who lives in Virginia. He writes essays that are published in black newspapers around the country. In one, he says that while the census may never have anticipated how many people would be in prison one day when they wrote the rules, this way of counting black people's bodies is an old, familiar story. He learned it in third grade at the segregated school he attended, how at the end of the 18th century, white Southerners proposed counting black people they enslaved as part of their population to pad their numbers. But the North balked against that, and that's why it was called the three-fifths compromise. The northern states agreed that they could count them as three-fifths of a person rather than a whole person because the more people you have uh, in any particular political unit, such as a state, then the more power that state got under the apportionment that came about from the census that were decreed to be taken every 10 years. Getting to count enslaved people as even a part of their population meant the South got more seats in Congress, which meant they got more influence. And the prison gerrymandering that takes place now uh, does the same thing. It, It counts people who are not allowed to vote and have very few rights in order to give uh, rights to people who can benefit. So in a district with a prison, like Roy Granger's, a small number of voters gets all the attention of the person they put into office, while in a community that loses a lot of people to prison, the lines around their district have to widen, so it gets lumped in with communities who have different needs. And this drowning out of her neighborhood's needs is what Cheryl was seeing all around her in the 53206. So she decided to make her voice louder. If I see injustice in my neighborhood, calling out injustices, you know, like incarcerating black folks more often than you do anyone else, my way of dealing with that is to rally a group of people together to build momentum. She says her activism, actions she organizes, hearings she shows up to, reforms she pushes for, is fiercer because her brother's political power is going somewhere that isn't their home. You're using them for voting purposes and the census. That's ridiculous. Especially, she says, because as soon as they get out, they're coming back here. But when they come back, they don't get counted because you've already taken that. You've taken enough. 
To get a sense of what it means for political power to be taken away, I spent some time around here on the last election night, November 2018. We are out here to help with the issues. We're not out here for the politician. You know, we are here to tell you guys, to convince you guys to vote. I hitched myself to a couple of women, Danielle Jackson and Vanessa Conway, who were out there trying to get every single neighbor of theirs to vote. She not registered. Uh, today is the last night for voting. Door to door, we passed a lot of houses where the lights were out. Hey. At the polling place inside the neighborhood community center, there was this feeling of celebration. This is like a Fourth of July for voting. Everybody come in and just get excited. Some neighbors lingering after they'd cast their vote. But there was this one guy sitting off to the side, a kind of wallflower at this voting dance, who Danielle called out. So have you voted? Can, you, can we please get the reason why? Legal trouble. Legal trouble? Okay, is you still on it or are you off? I'm on it. Okay, so to, uh, for future reference, when you do get off papers... He was on papers, he told Danielle back from prison but still on probation, which by Wisconsin laws means he'd have to wait until that was over to get his voting rights back. He'd just come here to watch. I went to the state capitol to find the member of the legislature who stands to benefit the most from prison gerrymandering, Assemblyman Michael Schraw. His district includes eight correctional facilities, around 6,000 prisoners. I thought that was 10% of his district, but Schraw corrected me. It's a little bit more than that, I think, because I think we figured it out once, taking the populations of the eight facilities. So it's a little bit more, actually, than 10%. The Assembly designs public policy in the state, including criminal justice policy. Representative Shaw happens to be chair of the Corrections Committee. If all prisoners were counted at home, Shaw's district would have to be redrawn. So what does he think about having so many of those prisoners counted as part of his district? He says it doesn't really cross his mind. But he also thinks of the people in prison as his constituents. You know, I believe they are, even though they can't vote. We still get a lot of letters, more so probably because I'm the corrections chair. But absolutely, I I represent everybody in the district, whether they can vote or not. Children can't vote, and I represent them. And for a Republican who represents a district with a lot of prisons, Shra has actually pushed for reforms to the state's criminal justice policies, which at times has made him unpopular within his own party. News Talk 1130 WISN, Mark Belling, late afternoon show. To some of the idiot Republicans that are in the state assembly right now, like Shra of Winnebago County, who keep claiming that there is an additional cost to incarcerating the people I want incarcerated. I will point out again, this guy is going to be incarcerated anyway. So in Wisconsin, as you've probably heard, Republicans have the majority in the state house, which means they would have to approve any new law changing the way the state counts prisoners. That's pretty unlikely. But since the last census, seven states, including New York and most recently New Jersey and Nevada, have passed legislation to count prisoners as residents of the place they lived before they went to prison. And just last week here in Wisconsin, the governor tweaked how redistricting works. Tony Evers, a Democrat, signed an executive order that gives the job of drawing new district maps to a nonpartisan commission. Republicans have already said they plan to ignore those maps. And the governor's order makes no mention of a new way to count prisoners. Leonard Collins. Even 100 miles away from each other, Leonard and his sister Cheryl remain connected by the same question. How change is going to happen when the people who write the rules benefit from the way things are? And people like Leonard are locked out of the conversation. So things keep on going. They keep you in the dark about everything. If you don't know that they got a policy for doing certain things and that they count you and you don't know what's happening with this, so you can't question it. One thing is clear, Cheryl and Leonard both agree. 
when the state practices prison gerrymandering, it's sending a message about who the state views as deserving representation. Yeah, it's a domino effect. So it's not the only problem, but it's a problem. People are powerless, you know, and that's because, you know, incarceration makes you powerless. Poverty makes you powerless. Not having a job or home, you become powerless. But if you keep all the power in one place, around one area, and this is where it's going to remain and will continue to take the power, there's going to always be this huge divide, you know. And it's not a good divide. And it's that us against them. Us being? The haves and have-nots. Which she says makes the possibility for democratic reform harder and harder to imagine. The Census Bureau could change where they count people in prison. A few years ago, the Bureau got flooded with more than 77,000 letters, all saying prisoners should be counted at their home address. But the Bureau decided not to change the rules. This year, the Bureau has promised to do one thing to address the issue. It'll give states data that distinguishes prison populations from the general population. And it'll share the data early enough that states can factor it into their redistricting calculations. How those states decide to use that data is another question altogether. Our story was reported and produced by Natasha Haverty. Our lead producer for this week's show is Pris Keneally. Taki Telenidis edited the show. Thanks to Reveal's Lance Williams, Esther Kaplan, and Will Carlos. Special thanks to Radio Bilingue for the radio drama audio. The Prison Gerrymandering Story was produced with help from Lucy Sullivan, Robin DiGiacinto, and Claire Hyman. Data help from Jared Knowles of Civilitics Consulting and the Prison Policy Initiative. It was supported by the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the O'Brien Fellowship in Public Service Journalism. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Original score and sound design by the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson. And remember, there is always more to the story. Support for Reveal comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switch to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash reveal. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash reveal. Odoo, modern management made simple.